From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. It is impossible to talk about the practices of the American church and the theological formulations of the American church apart from the historical, political, and economic context in which that church emerges. And to not see it as this like neutral thing, because the fact of the matter is, emerging in a colonialist, patriarchal, racist context has profoundly shaped the way that many churches in America conceive of, talk about, and embody the Christian story. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with the Reverend Duke Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. Duke Kwan is the lead pastor at Grace Meridian Hill, a neighborhood congregation in the Grace DC network committed to building cross-cultural community in Washington, D.C. Reverend Kwan is active in public conversations around race, equity, and racial repair in the American church, and he lectures on those topics around the country. His work has appeared in The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and The Witness. Dr. Gregory Thompson is a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer whose work focuses on race and equity in the United States. He serves as executive director of Voices Underground, an initiative to build a national memorial to the Underground Railroad outside of Philadelphia. He's a research fellow in African-American heritage at Lincoln University, which is a historically black college, and is a visiting theologian for mission at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, D.C. He's also the co-creator of Union, the musical, a soul and hip-hop based musical about the 1968 sanitation workers strike. He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, we're talking about their recent book, Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair. Reverend Kwan, Dr. Thompson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So I'd like to start the conversation with a little bit of a a weird shift in geography. I'd like to go to the grounds of the University of Virginia campus there in Charlottesville. And there on that campus, there's a graveyard. And in your book, Reparations, you walk us through that graveyard and you talk to us about the fact that that graveyard has sort of three levels to it. And when we go through the first level, we encounter a Civil War graveyard that commemorates the fallen dead of the Confederate Army. And then as we walk a little bit deeper past one wall, we get into a second section where some of the professors of UVA have been buried, as well as judges and other luminaries and citizens from the Charlottesville area. But then when we pass through that second wall into the third and final section, we encounter something else. And Dr. Thompson, since you live there in Charlottesville, why don't don't you paint this picture for us? When we walk through the graveyard, through that first section, that second section, and we come into that third area, what do we encounter? What do we find? I think it's best to be understood in, in terms of contrast. As you've gone through the Confederate Memorial, there's a large statue there commemorating the, the folks that have fought and died in the, on the Confederate side in this war and lots of headstones that are maintained and neatly manicured. Then you, you walk through the historic area, which is, has all, as you said, the luminaries from Charlottesville over the course of the past 
two and a half centuries. And you see, just like you said, professors and judges. And again, it's beautiful. It's manicured. There are flowers. There are magnolia trees. And then you walk through an opening at the far end of the wall and you enter into just what looks like a small lawn. There are no markers, no headstones, no indication uh, of what it is. And it's the African-American burial ground from EVA. It used to to just be woods outside of the cemetery. It was discovered by accident um, through uh, an environmental study for a university planned expansion. And they found 67 grave shafts there and realized this is where the some of the enslaved men and women who built this university were buried. And so now there's a small marker that indicates what you're standing in. But apart from it, there's that's all there is. And Reverend Kwan, as you and Dr. Thompson were looking at this story and thinking about this story, you drew some meanings from it and some wider kinds of lessons from it. But I'd love as a way of starting to get into this conversation about what is at the heart of your book, Reparations. Reverend Kwan, if you could walk us through a little bit about what were some of the lessons that you drew from this geography of erasure there in that cemetery in Charlottesville? Well, we talk in that section of our book about the invisibility of African-Americans and their suffering. And that's not only a fact of history, it actually was by design. This chasm that was created from the beginning between Black life and white life, Black history and white history, the Black experience of America and the white experience of America. And as we say at one point, The point of white supremacy and American racism was not merely to hate African-Americans, it was actually to render them invisible. And we set up our argument in the book by saying the first step in understanding the moral call to reparations is to first learn to see the harms that have been done to African-Americans, to begin to see the thefts, the mass cultural thefts that have been committed against African-Americans from the beginning of American history. And only when we begin to see this, only when we begin to discover the proverbial buried graves, the forgotten graves, will we actually begin to understand the moral imperative of reparations. And Dr. Thompson, you mentioned that if you go there now, there's just a small marker sort of commemorating the fact that there are 67 different burial sites, not of individual persons, but of, it's a mass grave. There are families there. And I wonder, how has UVA, the University of Virginia, how has the city of Charlottesville, how have they begun to think about to make amends for or to do anything about this history other than simply placing a small marker there? Well, you know, TVA's credit, when it was discovered, it, there was, they began to meet with descendant communities and with African-American communities here in town about how this site should be handled. And that's an ongoing discussion. That marker was something that was requested by the African-American communities here. And really around 2017, as you'll recall, Charlottesville had an event here where Heather Heyer was murdered. UVA had already begun to engage with the community about its racial past, but that really accelerated it. And so they started a project about enslavement at the University of Virginia. It has a great website with lots of information to try to understand what this history is and tell the story. They, they published uh, a book about it. It's called Educated in Tyranny that I thought was a really helpful book. We actually cite that in our own 
And then UVA has completed, but has not yet opened because of COVID, a memorial to enslaved workers here that tells the story in a very powerful visual way about the role of enslavement. But I think they're really just getting started. There is also, as you you probably saw, Governor Virginia signed just last week, signed a bill into law that began the the process of exploring reparations for the descendants of enslaved workers of, of UVA. So I think they're they're taking these steps. And it's not just this marker or not just this memorial, not just this website, but a, a constellation of things that are going to be a part of a larger reckoning and social re-narration. And I, I'm, I'm actually grateful for the way that it's doing that. But like every institution, <laughs> it's complicated and it's slow, but it's, it is happening. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Duke Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson about their recent book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Well, we've begun the conversation with this small piece of geography, a small grave plot behind another grave plot at the grounds of University of Virginia. And already we begin to see that there's a history there of erasure, of taking from a community that had helped to build that university and giving them nothing back in terms of both compensation but also recognition, and then a turn as these graves are discovered to try and begin to commemorate and to make amends for that and to begin to make restitution in some way to the descendants of those communities, that begins to get us into the entire question of what it means to enact reparations. And Reverend Kwan, I'd love to invite you to speak a little bit about what it is when we're talking about reparations, particularly in a Christian context, what do we mean? When we talk about reparations, we're referring to the conscious, the the deliberate acts, both individual and communal, of returning that which has been historically stolen, returning things that have been stolen by the forces of white supremacy. And that includes material possessions like wealth and property, but also non-material possessions such as truth and power. We talk about the return of the what has been comprehensively stolen across many generations across American history. Our focus in the book is on the mandate that falls upon Christians because of the many ways in which the Christian church in America has been a perpetrator and accomplice to these multiple thefts. Reparations is in some ways the act of reverse engineering and restoring all the ways in which white supremacy has perpetrated a theft in African-American communities. And Reverend Kwan, let me stay with you for just a moment. How did this book come to be? As you were sitting down with Dr. Thompson, what was the conversation that led you both to say, we need to write a book and it needs to be about reparations and we need to be the two people to do it? What was that thought process like? It it started as a conversation after we had both done individual work in this area, whether through different talks that we had given or personal research and reflection. Of course, we don't claim to have really much original thinking around this, except that we are indebted to a lot of African-American thinkers, both in the church and outside the church, that have made the moral case for reparations. And frankly, as we have sat under these thinkers, and as we have recognized how significant this way of thinking about the repair of harms that have been done, atrocious and and terrible harms that have been done in the African-American community over many centuries, we've just noticed how absent that same conversation is, that those same arguments are 
in white communities and in the white church, just how foreign this way of thinking, even biblically, is to non-black Christians and just felt like there was an opportunity, especially all that's going on presently in American society, an opportunity to actually give some voice to this historical conversation. Again, not one that we are offering ourselves, but rather just simply amplifying that conversation that's been going on unheard by non-Black people for generations, really. We, we, we don't believe that we're the only ones that could have made that case and or that we lay personal claim uh, to those arguments, but rather we do see ourselves as representing one side of what really is essentially a two-sided conversation, a uh, conversation between those who owe reparations and those to whom reparations is owed, and felt like there was just an opportunity to write this and, and to, it, by God's grace, ignite a public conversation around something that's been neglected for far too long. And Dr. Thompson, I'd like to stay for a moment with this notion of the structure of the book. Reverend Kwan just said that there was a very intentional move to try and sit at the feet of those African-American scholars who have done the work and the theory to bring this conversation about reparations to the foreground. And as I read your book, it was very clear that the shift in the latter half of the book is to really just give space to these different African-American voices. But I want to ask you a question about that specifically, because in this pairing, you and Reverend Kwan, you are Caucasian. You come from this white culture, this white heritage. And in academia, people that write books, we have an unfortunate history of those who have taken over the language of African-American thinkers. I'm thinking, in fact, of a book called White Fragility, which has been accused of this, of taking and taking the voices and the thought and erasing those voices, but still making the arguments. And so I want to ask you, as a person who comes from a background of whiteness, what sort of steps did you take to make sure that you were foregrounding and not co-opting these kinds of voices as you and Reverend Kwan were writing the book? What sort of safeguards did you put in place? You're talking, of course, about the, the problem of appropriation and what it would mean to, for people to take something that is not their own and present it as though it is their own and then to benefit from that. That's the kind of essence of, of appropriation. And so I think what we tried to do would say there this is and is not our own because we are speaking as people from one side of the conversation where we are I'm talking about myself specifically as somebody who owes reparations. But we, as Duke said, heavily rely on African-American intellectual and political and cultural history. And I think the way that we tried to guard against appropriation was on the one hand, making it very explicit where these arguments came from. And that's why there are 40 pages of end notes, so that we can make it very clear where this is coming from and why we are doing this. It's not to make ourselves architects of American reparations, nor is it to really center ourselves in any way as like the voices on this. It's to, it's to bring these voices that are being ignored by the communities in which Duke and I have long labored and saying, we want to bring these people to you. And so that's what we've done. And I think we continue now to try, whenever we have public conversations around this, to try to decenter ourselves and just simply bring those African-American leaders into the room. And in a very practical way, in addition to the, just the way we wrote the book and the way we cited it and the way we were very careful to, in every story to center African-American experience, is we were in dialogue with African-American folks about this before its conception and as we went along and had people reading and talking to us about this question. So I think 
I will say, I think the language of appropriation is pretty significantly under theorized right now. And I think that there a lot of work needs to be done around what it means. But given the, the status of that conversation right now, again, take taking something that, that you did, ideas that are not your own, presenting them as though they are your own without credit and then benefiting from that. We really tried, I think, at every point to resist that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Gregory Thompson and Reverend Duke L. Kwan. We're talking about their recent book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guests today are the Reverend Duke Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. They have written a new book called Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. I'd like to start this segment off by going again to another piece of geography and to take our listeners back to 1969 to the Riverside Church on the northwest side of Manhattan there in New York City. And there's a a service going on, and in the middle of the service, suddenly a young African-American man walks to the, the front of the church through the middle of the crowd. Some people try and stop him, and he stands on the steps of the Riverside Church. He turns around, and he begins to read a manifesto. Who is that young man? What is he doing there in 1969? Reverend Kwan, why don't you tell us a bit of that story? Well, that, of course, is the story of James Foreman, who was quite active during the civil rights era and marched together with Dr. King and others during that time. But he had written what he called the Black Manifesto and had decided to strategically visit one of the historic steeples in New York City in order to ensure their involvement in what he believed to be necessary for the healing of America's racial wounds. And that was for Christian churches and Jewish synagogues to pay reparations. Um, And he makes the case that the church, the Christian church, is uniquely responsible for reparations because of its centuries of participating in the plunder, the degradation, the exploitation of African Americans from the very beginning of their enslavement to the present day, at that time, 69, and and put it upon the church to respond. And that was his grand introduction of this idea, and it kicked off a series of different events through which he and some of his partners began to press this case publicly before American white churches. 
Well, and this really speaks to part of the tension that is at the heart of your book, Reparations, because as you just said, Reverend Kwan, the church has benefited, particularly the church in America, but really the church globally has benefited from colonialism and from the slave trade and from the dispossession of Native peoples in various capacities, but particularly in the American context of African Americans. And so on the one hand, we have the church's unquestionable history of benefiting from that. On the other hand, we have all of these texts that say, love thy neighbor, and that say that you need to make recompense, the year of Jubilee, all these sorts of things that come to us from the Bible and from Christian teaching. And I would love for the two of you to live with us in that tension for a moment. How is the church navigating, or is the church navigating, the very real history of exploitation that needs reparation, and these narratives that it has had through its entire history that shouldn't have allowed these sorts of exploitations in the first place. I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on that. Well, let me just start by commenting on the starting point, the premise of your question, which is that Foreman essentially said that more than reaching out to some alien idea or moral claim outside of the church that served as the basis for his demands for reparations, what he was really calling the church to do was simply live up to its own creeds and convictions. He was calling for integrity in the church and upon that basis, calling for the, for Christians to make reparations to African Americans. And that's important because like you said, there there is a fundamental inconsistency, a contradiction that has always been manifest in the way that the church has treated African Americans and the way that it has grappled with or refused to grapple with the realities of white supremacy and racism in America. And part of the problem right now, as far as how are we dealing with it? How are we managing this essential contradiction to this day? The answer is that we continue to be selective in our understanding of American history, of church history, of the place of our own Christian heroes in that history. We continue to prefer a a, a basic religious mythology in um, only giving attention to the successes of the American church in regards to American racial history, seeing ourselves as the rescuers and the heroes of the abolition era or the civil rights era, which isn't entirely incorrect, but it's essentially selective and therefore deceptive, self-deceived. And we, what we're really calling Christians to is a more holistic, accurate, and chastened reading of that history in order that we might be able to finally live up to our own creeds convictions and claims. And Dr. Thompson, I'd love to invite you to add anything to that if you wish. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I think one of the things that the many parts of the American church have yet to really honestly talk about is the fact that creeds and confessions don't exist in the abstract, that they're embodied in particular cultural contexts, and that cultural context actually shapes not only the way they're understood, but the way they're embodied. And the fact is that American Christian and before that colonial Christian creeds and confessions were embodied in an imaginative world where white males were by nature superior and that the enactment of the Christian gospel was a paternalistic act of salvation 
for the quote savages. And I think that one of the things that King really understood and was just beginning to theorize at the end of his life is that in order for the church to really live out the meaning of its creeds and to use his language, it has to recognize that it's not just about talking about those creeds, but but these creeds have been embodied in in a setting where the church is supportive of a state institution that has a monopoly on violence and also has a monopoly on material resources. And so this kind of racist notion about what it means to be a person, a monopoly on the market and a monopoly on violence, those three things are talking to each other. And so it's, it's not just simply saying, oh, we, we got to lower our neighbors. It's what the Bible says. It's realizing that we have talked about that and embodied and actually interpreted those creeds in light of some very broken cultural contextual powers that I think until the American Christian church, especially the broadly white evangelical church, and le- until that church is willing to acknowledge that its creeds and confessions do not stand independent from the historical circumstances in which we have lived them out, then we'll never move past this. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are the Reverend Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. They're the co-authors of a recent book called Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Well, so now we're really starting to get into some of the thickness of the argument that you make in your book, Reparations. And that is, first of all, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not possible to talk about a Christian church apart from these cultural historic forces that have been shaped and have been shaping along with kind of the state monopoly on power and material resources you were just talking about, shaping this narrative of racism and this narrative of white supremacy. Now, I just want to make sure, Dr. Thompson, that I've got that correct, or if I've missed something and you'd say it in a different way. No, I I think the point that I'm trying to make is that it is impossible to talk about the practices of the American church and the theological formulations of the American church apart from the historical, political, and economic context in which that church emerges. And to not see it as this like neutral thing, because the fact of the matter is, emerging in a colonialist, patriarchal, racist context has profoundly shaped the way that many churches in America conceive of, talk about, and embody the Christian story. Well, and Reverend Kwan, I want to pick up on that because I think very elegantly in the book Reparations, you both choose towards the the second half of the book to foreground a particular material experience, a particular moment. You look at the city of Memphis and you look at the city of Memphis in the wake of the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and you look at how the downtown changes economically, how that changes for some of the, the main economic actors like the sanitation workers who had been organizing at the time of Dr. King's assassination, and you look at some of the religious locations that are there as well. I think particularly of one temple there in the heart of the city. But you choose to use Memphis as a kind of microcosm for all of these questions. And if you could briefly, Reverend Kwan, walk us through some of the pieces of that part of the book. Like, why do we look at Memphis and what do we learn from Memphis? Well, I think we take a look at at Memphis as one of many different examples that could have been chosen. Cities that were not only devastated by white supremacy, but also saw the the glory and the hope of the black church and the black community seeking to give voice to their suffering and to seeking to reclaim their dignity, both within the church and outside the church in broader society. 
And so there's that rise and fall of a single city. And, and we talk about that, especially as we extend it all the way to the end of the book, seeing signs of hope of different individuals to this very day, and also Trotman in the work of restoring Claiborne Temple, which was a central place of organizing efforts during the civil rights era. And just to say that this is, to use it as an example of what repair can look like, what it's looked like in the past historical efforts, and what it can look like in the present, and even looking ahead to the future. You used a word a moment ago that I want to linger on. You you used the word dignity. Tell us how dignity factors into these questions, Reverend Kwan, and why should the church be focusing on dignity maybe instead of some other aspects of this particular question? Well, the way that we narrate the story of white supremacy in our book, first of all, we talk about the primary essence and social effect of white supremacy being that of theft. That's an essential part of the moral argument that we make, the moral logic of reparations. And that one of the greatest expressions of this theft in in American history has been the theft of identity, the theft of truth. That is the very truth about African-American dignity expressed through what we call the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that every single human being is created in the image of God. That truth has been denied and snuffed out in the manner in which African-Americans have been treated. So both in the way that we see that in the story of African enslavement in the earlier parts of this nation's history to the way in which that basic commitment was expressed also in Jim Crow, under Jim Crow, and in many ways even to this present time. We then talk about reparations as being a reclaiming or a repairing and restoring of that truth about African-American dignity, whether if it's through graphical images, imagery, and visual depictions of Black dignity and beauty, or if it's in the retelling of truer stories about that dignity and the way that is preached in our pulpits, the way in which that is narrated in the stories that are written in journalistic endeavors, uh, stories that are being told, and the way that even the past ways that that dignity has been robbed and stolen can be memorialized, telling a truer history of this theft. So what we're essentially trying to do in a book, in, in, in the book, is broaden the moral horizon of what we believe reparations to be all about. That if we carefully examine all the ways in which white supremacy simply took things, from African-American communities, that what we see is not simply the theft of wealth, which is traditionally the narrow range under which reparations is typically considered, but we also see the theft of truth and of power. And we believe from a Christian perspective, reparations must involve the restoration of all three of those. Dr. Thompson, I want to bring you into the conversation because Reverend Kwan is just talking about the importance of restoring the dignity of those who have been oppressed, those who have suffered, of restoring the recognition of their humanity. But I really saw in your book, Reparations, a a kind of dialectic between this question of dignity and another matter, that of humility. And so those who have been oppressed need to have their dignity restored. Those who have power and those who have been oppressors need to learn how to be humble and even to the point at certain times of being humiliated. But I'd love to hear more about how humility and even possibly humiliation factors into this process of reparations. Yeah, so I guess I would say two things just briefly. One is I I think we want to be clear that We don't think that the dignity of African-Americans needs to be restored. It's inherent 
what we think is that the public recognition and the social embodiment that of honoring that dignity and giving it all the room to thrive that it ought to have is, is what, what needs to be restored. The dignity is inherent and ineradicable. And, and just so everybody's, you know, all your listeners are clear, that's what we think. Because I don't want us to be in a situation where it sounds like we're conferring dignity on African Americans. No, it's there. It's just we're, we're living in a social order that perpetually seeks to deny it. In terms of the question about humility, we do use this language of what we call the humiliation of truth. And, and what, we, what we mean is it's a certain kind of humiliation because if white supremacy is predicated upon the supremacy of whiteness, <laughs> there's a form of pride that's inherent in that. And so I think what we're talking about is not the diminishment of white, say, white dignity or something like that. I think what we're talking about is humiliation vis-a-vis the pride-bearing mythologies that to which we cling and saying, for many of us, you know, to realize, for many of our churches who, you know, and our church leaders who imagine themselves to be parts of this institution of greatness that has come here to do all these wonderful things in America and the, the city on a hill and whatnot. The recognition that actually, as, as we say in the book, that we're not just um, citizens of a city on a hill, we're also inhabitants of a city that's built on the, the graves of broken children. When you hold those two things together, which is what it requires, that humbles you. And I think that, frankly, that's what this entire thing requires. It requires the ability to renounce false pride and to, to recognize the truth about where we are, even in ways that that, that humbles us. And I think that's a spiritual precondition. Reverend Kwan, I would like to bring you back into the conversation. Why does the church resist doing exactly what Dr. Thompson just said? Why is the church resistant to both recognizing the dignity of those who have been oppressed, and why is the church unwilling to humble itself in the face of these realities? First, you're right that the church does resist (laughs) and struggle to do this. I think it's in part fundamentally that we have a vision of the kingdom of God that is not properly upside down. That is, we believe that the way up is the way up rather than the way up being the way down. That we don't actually believe that the doorway to the kingdom is repentance. Uh, That we don't actually believe, truly believe that Jesus meant what he said, which is, if anyone would follow after him, that we must deny himself and die. That we don't believe the essential cruciformity of love. And that we don't actually believe that there is true power in the location of marginality. Uh, that we actually have um, historically believed and continue to believe, especially as a a white evangelical movement that has accrued so much social and political power in America by its alliances with the powers that be. We've come to believe that we need to be at the center of it all, center stage, and sitting next to the thrones of this world. And we have not actually believed that there's the mystery, the power of Christ's kingdom, found at the margins, in the place of weakness, on the hills of Golgotha. And because of all of that, (laughs) which is fundamentally a problem of biblical conviction, but more than that, it becomes a socialized reality. We pass on as an almost an inheritance of sort of these assumptions of what it means uh, to be the church and to be Christians in this world. We therefore just have a hard time admitting when we're wrong, just at the most basic level. We believe we will lose something rather than believing that we will gain something of God's grace in the power of the kingdom by admitting when we've screwed up that we struggle to renounce control 
and rather feel like we need to control everything from our institutions all the way down to literal theological terms, as well as the terms of debate when it comes to public conversations around reparations. We struggle to let go and to die. And for those reasons, this is just an absolutely foreign thing, especially when that habit has been repeated again and again. And in a sense, our moral debt has only increased. Now it's of such an uh, enormous size and, and volume, as it were, that we truly feel threatened by the mountain of debt that stands before us. What we need to do is still reckon with it and dive in better late than ever. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. We're talking about their recent book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guests today are the Reverend Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. We're talking about their recent book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Well, I'd like to start this segment with a kind of theological question, because there's a point in your book, Reparations, where you start to talk about what Jesus did for us and how Jesus changes the world. And coming from the backgrounds that you come from, you both are trained ministers. This is an expected move. But I found myself wondering if someone hears that message, Jesus paid the price and there is no more price to be paid. Jesus took away our sins. I could imagine a person who has benefited from white supremacy, a person who has benefited from the kind of theft of material goods and even the theft of truth that you've been talking about, washing their hands at that point and saying, that was all in the past, but Jesus has forgiven me now, and so let's let bygones be bygones, and let's just start fresh and start anew. How would you respond to that kind of theological problem, that kind of theological position? Well, I mean, I think it's both a category error and a moral error. The idea is that when Jesus pays for our sins, there are sins against one another against the Father, and all of that is is paid through His atonement, and all of our our debts are paid. But I don't thereby like not pay my phone bill. 
okay? Because there is also this social debt, this historical debt. There are these things that we are obligated. Our obligations don't cease. And I think once we begin to recognize that <laughs> our salvific obligations have all been paid by Jesus and that we rejoice in that, that is not the same thing as saying all of my debts are paid, therefore I can wash my hand of anything that I find to be uncomfortable because we all, you know, many of us have mortgages and rent, right? We don't think that way about this. So it's a category error that I think most people would see. And I think if most people had it role played back to them, they would recognize this is a really bad argument. <laughs> it's like a really bad conceptual argument. And I said that it's a moral, it's a moral um, error too, because we see this all the time. People are going to use specious theological arguments to justify what is essentially a sort of moral deformity in my judgment to say, I've benefited from this. I have all of this. Other people have been harmed. And yet, because Jesus paid it all, I have no obligation to those neighbors. That is a morally monstrous claim. And I think what has happened is you've essentially placed yourself outside of the realm of Christian ethics. You've collapsed ethics and soteriology together in a way that Christian theologians throughout the history would say, sorry, this is no longer Christian theology anymore. This is reducing everything in the Christian faith to your own forensic justification and assuming that has now accounted for the whole. And that is not what Christianity teaches. So it's both a category error and that I think is really profoundly related to, to a moral error. And if I could just jump in and add that this was actually seen in the practice of restitution, even in the Old Testament, that when a person who was guilty of theft came to the priest, they were required to bring two things. One, a ram that would serve as what was called an asham, a reparation offering, that is the payment of your debt by a sacrificial substitutionary ram unto God. And then you had to bring a second thing. That is the thing that you stole. You got to give it back to your neighbor. So there are always two strands of our obligations, even in the way that the Old Testament conceived of our moral duties upon conviction of guilt for theft, violating the Eighth Commandment. And that continues even to this day. Jesus is the true ram made atonement, reparation unto God on our behalf, and yet our obligations to our neighbors still continues. It endures. But we may be forgiven for that sin, but that doesn't mean we can keep on hanging onto the thing that we stole, which essentially is a perpetual and repeated theft if we do that. And that's why our Christian forebears, theologians, say it calls into question our very repentance and therefore forgiveness from God as well it actually starts to make the whole thing fall apart. But just to say, as Greg just mentioned, it, it's a category error as well as a moral error in its essence. This is so beautiful, and I want to make sure that my listeners have heard this correctly. So when we talk about the atoning work of Jesus Christ in a Christian context, we mean it when we say that all the debts to God the Father are paid. But what I'm hearing you both saying is that there's still material wrongs that we have done one to another to our neighbors in our communities, and those don't just disappear at the assertion of this kind of theological truth. These still need to be accounted for. And what I'm hearing you say, Reverend Kwan, is that back in the time of the Second Temple, there was an entire economy, both for getting you right with God the Father, but also getting you right with your neighbor. Now, these are my words, not yours. So I want to make sure, have I heard this correctly, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's basically it. And just to clarify, too, as much as we're talking in theological terms, this is an ethic that's completely comprehensible even to the smallest of children. 
if one of my children steals a bike or a baseball bat from his or her sibling, we can say you have stolen and you have done wrong. And we can tell them and reassure them rightly that Jesus forgives you of your sin upon your confession. This is a wonderful thing. Amen. And yet at the end of the day, we'll also say, give the dang thing back. <laughs> give the bat, give the bike back. And I think we understand this again. This is what, uh, what Greg was referring to earlier. We have almost complicated the basic ethics of this in a way that really traces back to a deliberate obfuscation of what our enduring responsibilities are. And we've used religious justifications to mount that obfuscating claim, which is somehow that Jesus erases all my duties to love my neighbor. No, he doesn't. In fact, the ancient confessions would say it increases my duty to love even better because I've, I've experienced unfathomable love from my Savior. So I, I should actually be quicker to return things that I've taken. I should be quicker to repent. I should be quicker to repair because of the reparative work of Christ that I've received from him. So it's a completely confused and frankly dishonest argument that keeps on popping up from people, Christians, who really ought to know better. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are the Reverend Duke L. Kwan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. We're talking about their powerful recent book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Well, Reverend Kwan, in light of what you were just saying and amplifying on what Dr. Thompson just said, I think that you both really illustrate this so beautifully in your book, Reparations, with your treatment of the story of the Good Samaritan. And We've been talking about how Christ does not eliminate our need to care for our neighbor, but as you said, Reverend Kwan, actually increases our obligation to our neighbor. And what I read in your treatment of the story of the Good Samaritan is here we have an example of someone who had no obligation at all to the person who was beaten up and laying by the side of the road, was not responsible for the violence done to them, and nevertheless took on responsibility for this person, for this stranger. But as I begin to tell this story, I think listeners are beginning to get a sense of where you two went in this book, but I'd love for you both to expand a little bit on this story of the Good Samaritan and how this teaches us what you're talking about. Dr. Thompson, I'd like to invite you to begin, but I'd like to hear from both of you. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think the interesting part of that story is that the Samaritan did not have culpability. This is a theft story, right? This person was assailed by robbers and thieves. The Samaritan comes upon this person. He was not culpable for what happened, but he did, in fact, have obligations. That's the point of the story, is that the obligations of love are what we are now taking upon ourselves. And this is why we're using this language of like moral monstrosity earlier, because this argument that folks were talking about earlier is this notion that you can receive love from God as a pretext for denying love to other human beings. And that is like profoundly wicked. And so I think part of what we see in the Good Samaritan story is that though this person did not have culpability, they had absolute comprehensive obligation that was defined by the reality of love. And so when this person sees someone that has had things taken from them, their work is restoration, to restore this person to wholeness. And we see that really as, as we think Jesus did. Remember, Jesus is, is teaching us in this story what love of neighbor means. And we see this as really the essence of the Christian social ethic. Yeah, Dr. King, when reflecting on and teaching on this passage, on this parable, he, he refers to this ethic as bearing this unenforceable obligation of love. And what he meant by that 
was that it's a, a supernaturally generated love, this love of neighbor that cannot be coerced from the outside, cannot be enforced by human laws and even the edicts of the church, as it were, could only be produced from within. And he said, and it's precisely this kind of love, which he often referred to as agape love, that was the hope of racial healing, hope for racial healing in America. And this is the irony of it. King talks about this as an unenforceable obligation. It's Christians, as of late, who seem to be demanding only obligations that are enforceable, that can be codified, that can be, we're almost insisting that we will only move towards this call to reparations if we can prove that there's a demand from the outside, or if it can be codified, or, you know, it's amazing. This motivation of neighbor love, which in our book we uh, describe this sort of strand of the moral logic of reparations as the more excellent way, right? Beyond culpability, beyond being able to trace a direct lineage or legacy from thefts of the past to you personally, and I'm not going to move until you can prove that to me. We say this latter kind of motivation, this latter kind of unenforceable obligation of love, in fact, is the most Christian of motivations. And this is essentially what embodiment of the gospel looks like in our churches and in our personal lives. And every time people ask for more, which is really asking for less, uh, they are essentially betraying the very heart of our Christian identity. This notion that you just said of asking for more when they're really asking for less, that really pushes us to the heart of the question. Listeners who have been with us through the whole conversation may now be thinking to themselves, okay, so we're we're talking about reparations, and I'm on board with why this is a, a theological and a spiritual necessity, but what does it look like? How do I start? What do I need to do? What does the church need to do? And how long is it going to take? I mean, these are the kind of brass tacks questions that I think some listeners are going to be thinking about right now. And if you're willing, I would love for you to entertain some of those questions and and flesh out for us a little bit. In your vision, how does this begin to look in terms of practical next steps for the church and for individual believers in the church? Reverend Kwan, why don't you begin? We outline what we call a framework in the final chapter of the book. And so maybe you might say that one practical step is to get the book and read it together with us, enter into this public conversation. But what we offer is not actually uh, sort of a menu of options that, that we're inviting people to take from. Here, here's what you can do and, and, and choose from a couple of these options. First of all, we say that we need to pay attention to our inner life, becoming people of repair. And this is where that repentant posture, the humiliations of truth, the renunciation of control and other virtues that need to be instilled in our individual lives as well as our communities, that there's an important work that needs to be done there. But then we also talk about the repair of truth, of power, and of wealth. And we give a little bit of framing that points people in a general direction. But one important thing for us is that we call people not to run out there with answers, but rather to follow the leadership of local African-Americans. And so there's an essential component in all of this to learn to follow and to enter into dialogue with Black leaders whom you can follow. So that's both a principial commitment as well as a practical one as far as what people can do. But I think it's also important for us to point out 
And again, I know I'm not getting as practical as you may want, want us or concrete as you may want us to get, but we do think this is really important. People may get frustrated in the sense that we have not sufficiently spelled out all the details of what can I do? What are my next steps? And what we're trying to persuade people of is that we are coming into this conversation with a completely empty moral imagination when it comes to reparations. Again, in part because the non-Black church and really the non-Black community in America has been completely negligent of these ways of thinking about racial repair, that there we should assume that it will take some time for us not just to learn the arguments, but rather to adopt a, a new imagination informed by the thefts of the past but also brought forward into the possibilities of the future. And that it's only when we have been completely remade and reshaped by this biblical vision that we will be able to come up with creative solutions in conversation with African Americans as to what the best way to enact repair in our local communities might look like, which might look different from one community to the next. Dr. Thompson, I'd love to invite you to add to that if you wish. Thank you. Yeah, I think what Reverend Kwan said is right, that they're, we're, this is targeted at the imagination. The practical steps are see, own, and repair. And those are the three kind of stru structures of the book. I think that I would say that it, one thing that he said at the end is really important is that reparations looks differently from community to community, and it will be collaboratively conceived and enacted. And so maybe this will help your readers in some ways, America is at the very beginning of a public conversation around reparations. Some people have been having it for a long time. Other people are just getting into it. And it's analogous to where we were a year or so ago with COVID. Like some people have been studying, you know, these kind of diseases for their whole lives. Most people had never heard of this, didn't know what was going on, but now it's here. It's coming every day. More things are coming out of the news about it. And people are like, how do we do this? How do we do this? I think, remember, we're at the beginning of this. And the way we do it is exactly how we built the vaccine for COVID, which is why don't we get people who are thinking about this, get together and try to figure out if we can experiment and see what this is going to mean. Let's have broad conversations. Let's get people in every part of our country. Let's get people in every nation of the world talking about this, how we might do this, and then together come up with these with, with visions for it. I think. That is, it's incredibly important that people understand that where we are as a culture is not at the 12-step reparations program. Where we are, where many people are, is still coming to terms with the reality of this and still coming to terms with the moral ownership required. And then we're gonna have, people are going to have to build relationships with African-American communities and actually learn what they think, right? And then learn what the racial damage in their own community has been. This is what this is going to re require of us. And I think that doesn't feel as actionable as I think some people would want it to, but it is. It's profoundly action-oriented. And just one last thing, the question, how long will it take? I, I see that question that comes up. It com it's come up in, the, in several reviews. I, I basically want to say, like, how long does democracy take? How long does lo love take? That's what this feels like for me, because I, what we're talking about is repairing a world not just, we say this explicitly, not just repaying a debt, but repairing a world. And so I don't know how long this takes. And I frankly don't understand that to be, even though I see it happening a lot, 
that isn't a question that in my judgment emerges natively from the Christian tradition. The question of how long do I have to love? How long is this going to take? I think until the world is healed, that's what I understand the Christian ethical life to be. And we keep going generation after generation until, as it says, uh, this, this salvation goes as far as the curse has gone. And that's the work. Well, Dr. Thompson and Reverend Kwan, your book, Reparations, was so clearly laid out and so powerfully written and so beautifully evocative, both of the past, but also the possibilities of the future and the fierce urgency of our present. I loved reading it. I know that my listeners are going to love reading it, and it's going to be an important book for them. Thank you for taking the time to write it, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you, Dr. Dalton. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great being here. We've been speaking today with Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson. Reverend Duke Kwan is the lead pastor at Grace Meridian Hill, a congregation in the Grace DC network in Washington, DC, whose mission includes the commitment to build cross-cultural community. Dr. Gregory Thompson is a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer whose work focuses on race and equity in the United States. He serves as executive director of Voices Underground an initiative to build a national memorial to the Underground Railroad outside of Philadelphia. We've been speaking today about their recent book, Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.